Um, as we saw last week, the people of Judah were called to remember uh, the dark day of the locusts. Uh, remember the locusts. Uh, remember that time when the locusts came and destroyed the nation. Uh, the wine and the oil failed. The trees dried, stripped bare, and the seeds shriveled up underneath the ground. Uh, remember, this was all due to the sin of the people. Uh, we don't know what that sin was, and yet uh, that's what the, the, the picture that we get from Joel was. Uh, remember the day of the locusts and in light of this uh, God reminded them of a day which was to come a day which would be much worse than that day of the locusts uh, remember the coming day of the judgment the day of the Lord when the army of the Lord would come with complete devastation uh, the unstoppable army of the Lord and it would come again because the sin of the people uh, the sin of the world the judgment that people would face because of their rejection of God. And as we um, read of this judgment of God, it it picks up on that theme which we see right the way through the Bible, uh, that God has a judgment to bring and that he will come in judgment on people. Uh, no No one has ever lived a perfect life before God and the perfection of God demands justice. It demands that he judges people in the world. And so he will come in judgment. The Bible is quite clear in that all the way through. Now listen to these words of um, Athanasius, a man from a long time ago. Um, He says this in in, in his book on the Incarnation. He says, The law of death which followed from the transgression prevailed upon us and from it there was no escape. The thing that was happening was in truth both monstrous and unfitting. It would, of course, been unthinkable that God go back upon his word and that man having transgressed should not die you see right at the beginning God said if you sin then you will die and God can't go back on his word once he said that in his justice he must uh, punish that sin and yet we saw that last week but we also saw last week that God himself calls people back to himself calling them to repent in response to the judgment a response to what they've happened to them in the past and what will happen to them in the future, God calls them to come back and repent. Come back to God. They have to come into repentance, contrite because of their sin, and ask for his mercy. And so we saw it, and we read it this morning in verse 12 of chapter 2. Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with weeping and mourning. To rend your heart and not your garments. Uh, The call was urgent to these people. Return to God. Come in repentance before him. You see, the judgment of God that is coming should arouse in us a recognition of our sinfulness in our standing before God. And in that, we actually see the mercy of God. Because God, in his mercy, shows us what we are like and so then calls us back to himself God must punish his sin God must, not his sin God must punish our sin but yet he calls us back to himself but I wanted to think a little bit more about this repentance before we move on to see what we see in our passage today because what exactly is repentance what does it mean to repent what does it look like Is it just a a deep despair and guilt over our sinfulness? 
Well, you could think of Judas, couldn't you, in the, in the New Testament. He has a, a deep a guilt and despair at what he has done. He realises what he's done. Is that repentance? Well, no, it's not repentance. You see, deep sorrow is not in itself repentance. A feeling of guilt before God is not in itself repentance. This is what Calvin says. He says, it, the Bible, represents them, so that's uh, people like Judas, as acknowledging the gravity of their sin and afraid of God's wrath. But since they conceived of God only as avenger and judge, that very thought overwhelmed them. You see, they've, they've recognised something of themselves and something of God, but they've not understood everything. That kind of guilt and fear is not repentance, even though it acknowledges the awful, perilous position that they have before God. You know, so when I meet people who feel very guilty because of their sin, who feel very upset and fearful because of their sin, that in itself doesn't lead me to think they've repented. And indeed, as you come to events week and you share the gospel with people and they come to realise they're standing before God, that in itself does not mean that they've repented. It's no good showing people they're standing before God and they become fearful if that is where it stays, a fear before God. Now listen to this uh, de- definition of repentance, a little bit complicated, but hopefully it might help us to understand what true repentance actually is. Repentance is the true turning of our life to God, a turning that arises from a pure and earnest fear of him, and it consists in mortification of our flesh and the old man and the vivification of the spirit. Now there's quite some complicated things in there, but let's just take that step by step, because I think it will help us to understand what we do before God, what repentance is, actually understand who we are as Christians better. You see, first of all, it's a true turning to God. It's not a false thing. It's not something which is an outward show. Remember what we saw last week. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to it with all your heart. It's an earnest turning to God. It's turning with our whole self to God. And it's not just a show outwardly. It's not just tearing clothes so that you will look good to people around you who think they're very religious. It was a true turning with our whole heart to God. And then the second bit was it is a turning that arises from a pure and earnest fear of him. Again, that's what we saw last week. The people were presented with their sin in the coming judgment of God, and so they turned to God. You see, the judgment of God should be presented before us cause us to turn back to God. The consideration of the greater judgment of God to come should cause us to turn back. And so we see in Calvin's description the turning that arises from a pure and earnest fear of him. Before the mind of the sinner inclines to repentance, to turn to God, it must be aroused by thinking on divine judgment. And so just a a, a sub-point there. When we tell people the gospel, we must never think that we're doing them a favour if we don't speak of the judgment of God. The judgment of God is a terrible thing but if we don't speak of that to people and we don't tell them that we're doing them a great disservice. We're we're unloving towards them. Because in the Bible God presents his judgment before people so that they know they're standing before him so that they might turn to him 
It's part of God's mercy that he uses what will happen to people in the future if they don't turn to him as a means of drawing them back to himself. So don't think you do a favour to people when you tell them the gospel if you admit that from it. What we see so far, that Calvin's description fits what we've seen in Joel so far. It's to turn back to God earnestly with our whole heart in light of the judgment of God. And then we come to these, the strange bit at the end about the, the mortification of our flesh and the vivification of, our, of the Spirit. Now, notice that both of these things are included in repentance because as we go on, you might think that these are something after. What he means by mortification is it's a hatred of the sin that is within ourselves in a turning away from it, a, a getting rid of that which is in ourselves, that which is against God, that which uh, God does not like in us. It's turning away from the old in ourselves. But then there's the vivification of the Spirit, which is a turning to God. That's the positive side of it. Uh, mortification is getting rid of the sin in our lives, and vivification is being made alive in the Spirit. Alive to God, alive to the things of God, alive to uh, the purposes of God and the will of God in our lives. So you see, within repentance then, you could say it includes everything that we would normally think of in conversion. It's a turning to God because of who God is in judgment, or who will come in judgment on us. It's a hatred of our sin and getting rid of our sin and a turning to be made alive in God again. It's what happens in the gospel. So you see how much more sin, uh, repentance is than feeling sorry for our sins. It includes everything of turning back to God, of getting rid of the sin, of living a life for God and being made alive by God. <coughs> and that's something which we continually do as Christians. That we continually come to God. That we continually ask Him to forgive us. Continually say, I'm sorry for my sin. I don't want to do that. I want to live for you, Lord. Please help me. And the people can turn and they can do this because of God Himself. And as you remember what Joel says in verse 13 of chapter 2, rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord. Why? For He is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. Can you see why people then can turn to this God, so the God that they might be uh, fearful of the calamity which he's going to send, why they might turn to him, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents, he relents from sending calamity. That this is the God who they were to return to. The God to whom we return when we turn in repentance to him. And Joel tells the people why they should return to God in verse 14. They return because he's like this. And then he says in verse 14, Who knows? He may turn and have pity and leave behind a blessing. It seems rather weak, doesn't it, not, in, in light of what we've heard. Who knows, maybe God will bless us after all. Look, will God be kind to them? Will he have pity on them? Will he leave them behind the blessing now that they've turned? Or will he just overwhelm them in his judgment? Will the people turn, calling on God? In, light, in verse 17, we see what they were to call in verse 17, where it says, Spare your people, O Lord, 
Do not make your inheritance an object of scorn, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? They call on God two things. Have pity on us. And don't make your inheritance an object of scorn so that people would walk past Israel and say, they've got a rubbish God. Look at their God that he can't even save that people. Don't make yourself an object of scorn among the nations. But will God turn? Who knows? He may turn. And it's on that cliffhanger that we get to verse 18. What's God going to do in response to their turning? Well, in groups, if you want to look at Joel 18 to 27. That we have is we think this is all for us right now. But in the, old, in the New Testament, when these things are picked up and fulfilled, you often find that they don't all come at the same time. There's a, there's a stretching of time. And we receive different things at different times. You see, all the blessings that we see here are ours, but they're kept in heaven for us. We don't live in heaven now. And yet they are ours and they can't be taken away from us and we will receive all of those things when heaven comes, when the new creation is brought in. And we will receive all this blessing, the abundant blessing of God, and in some ways it is ours now. Now there will be peace and prosperity. There will be safety and wealth. A time when all God's blessings come to us and we will see it and we will be there and we will be with God and we will worship God forever and it will be brilliant. But we have to understand that those things are kept in heaven for us. And the time now we experience a foretaste of those things but we don't experience the full extent of that until we get to the future. You see, if you expect to get all those things now then like Emily, you'll be confused and disappointed and disillusioned with the faith. You'll feel that you're not good enough, your faith is not strong enough, you're too sinful. If you try and work for the wrong things now, you'll be always disappointed. And so, for example, world peace. Will peace come in the world? Yes, when Christ returns. But if you try and work for world peace now and put all your effort into that, then you will be disappointed. Because the time that we are in now, world peace won't happen. Now, it's not to say that you don't do things along the way as you can to, to work for those things. As they come along in your way, you can help. And you can work for peace and justice. But if you think that you're going to bring and there will be world peace on this earth now before Christ returns, you'll be very disappointed. We have a concern for peace, but we don't spend all our effort and time and money into investing in that now, because it will never come. You see, there is great blessing in the Christian life, but some of it we have to wait for. Now listen to this from 1 Peter. You might want to write this one down to look at it again later. 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, verse 3. A, a great verse, which helps us to see what, what, we're just, what I've just been saying. Peter says in, in verse 3 there, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade, kept in heaven for you who through faith are being shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation 
that is ready to be revealed in the last time. You see, you have an inheritance that's been kept for you. Another stream throughout the New Testament is to say, we are now seated in heaven with, them, with, with those things. Our real reality is there, but yet we live in this life now. These are our inheritance. You know, somebody offers you an inheritance in this world. Uh, don't believe them. Particularly if they say, if you wash my car every Saturday from, for the next three years, then, then I'll give you the house. Uh, they're probably just having you on. Just a, a little bit of life, a life tip there for you. <laughs> but when God says, you have an inheritance that's kept in heaven for you, we can be sure of that. We can be sure that the blessing promised in Joel is ours in Christ. You see, you, you will receive the blessing of God, but if you try to work for that now, if you try to get heaven on earth now, you just become disappointed. Well, the question then becomes, uh, what should I be doing now? You've told me what I'm not to be doing. What should we be doing now? Well, firstly, we need to see that what we see in Joel is all fulfilled in the Lord Jesus. Now, all this prophecy about Joel finds its fulfilment in Christ. You see, we're called back to God. That's what Joel says. And Joel says, who knows, he may turn and have pity and leave behind a blessing. As Christians now, we don't say, who knows. We so we know that God will turn and have blessing and leave behind a blessing. God will be kind to us. God will show us pity. God will be merciful to those who turn to him. Why do we say that? Because Jesus Christ died on the cross so that our sin can be removed and God's blessing can come to us. Because of Christ on the cross, when somebody comes and repents of their sin, truly turning to God, then we know that God's blessing will come to them because Christ died on the cross for them. You see, the... When we sin, we face the judgment of God. When we turn, we turn away from that. But how can the judgment of God be removed from us? Well, it's there that you see the Lord Jesus Christ bore the wrath of God. And the Lord Jesus took the wrath of God. He paid the penalty. So that doesn't stand against those now who truly repent. It's where, in some ways, the the two halves of Joel find their resolution. How can a God who is so just possibly bless those people who return, who are sinful? How can his justice allow that to happen? Because Christ died on the cross and bore the penalty for our, our sin. His justice is fulfilled on the cross. And so Romans 3.25 says, God presented him is a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Can you see what Paul's saying in Romans? Because Christ died, his, God's justice was fulfilled and so God was right to leave the people in Joel's time free and not judge them for their sin why can God forgive you now and provide a blessing for you 
because Christ died on the cross for you. If Christ didn't die on the cross for you, you'd be always wondering, who knows, maybe he will have pity on us. But now we can say, yes, he will. If you're on the cross, we find the place where wrath and mercy meet. That's why the cross truly is the centre of the Christian faith. It's where everything flows from in our faith. So what does it mean for us now? Well, we have confidence to turn, but we can also call on other people to return to the Lord. You see, the message of Joel is for all people in the world. We call on them to repent because God will be gracious to you. So hear these words in, in Acts 17. In, in Acts 17, the, uh, Paul has been proclaiming that uh, God has made all the things. He made all existence. And then he says this in verse 29. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. You see, what do we do now? Well, we tell people to repent, to come to God, to receive the blessing of God. Now is the time of repentance. Now is the time when we can go to people and say, come to God in repentance. We can preach Christ crucified and say, come to God, Christ has died for you. You need not face his judgment. You may receive his blessing. You see, we declare to others that the time is coming and that they can repent before God. You see, the second thing that we do, we repent, we call others to repent, but those who have repented then live a life for God. See, we repent of our sinfulness. We repent of living as if God did not exist. Repent of the things which brought God's uh, wrath on us. And we now live a new life. It's the mortification of sin, the vivification of the Spirit. It's getting rid of the old and living for the new life. You know, when I, uh, when I left school, I used to play rugby. Um, it'd be a bit of an embarrassment now if I tried to play rugby again. But you see, that's my old life, was playing rugby. There's no point in me now still keeping my boots in the bottom of my wardrobe. There's no point in me now opening my wardrobe doors and thinking, there's my boots, I wish I could put those on again. There's no point in me thinking, oh, maybe I'll put them on tonight and run around the garden. Maybe that'll be fun. You see the point? We have left behind the old life and we embrace the new life. There's no point looking back at others and thinking, oh, maybe I should go back to that life. Maybe that life will be good. No, we've left behind the old. The things that brought the justice of God and the wrath of God towards us, we leave those behind and we now live in the Spirit for God. We seek to cultivate in our hearts the things that will be pleasing to God, the things that will bring honour and glory to God. Do you know it's what, what Paul says in Colossians? Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your new life is hidden with Christ in God. 
When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. And then Paul goes on to help them to see what it looks like to live that life of setting your minds on things above, the new life that God has brought to them. It's a, it's a life where we love each other and serve each other and build each other up. A life when we get rid of our evil desires. We don't look back to those days as the glory days. We look back and shame on those days and live the new life for God. And in doing that, in growing to know God and love Him more, we find great blessing. It's nothing compared to the blessing of when we will be there seeing Him face to face, but we can understand something now of, un- of, of knowing God and loving God and, uh, and being in relationship with God. You see, there's great joy in living that life in growing to love God and know Him more. And you see, that then leads us to the response that we should have. The response that Joel shows us. What's the response that we should have? Did you see it in verse 23? Be glad, O people of Zion. Rejoice in the Lord your God. Be glad, rejoice. We can be glad and rejoice because God has saved us. He has given us new life. He has raised us to be with Christ. He will bless us fully in the future. So you could be saying that. I remember somebody told me a story this week of a, um, a young student. He just became a Christian and he was on a train going home. Um, and across, him, across the way there was a, a bishop wearing a very thick clerical collar. And he thought, oh, these bishops, sometimes they... They, they, they look like that on the outward, but inwardly they're not saved. And so he said to the bishop, are, 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 you, are you saved? Are you a Christian? And the bishop replied to him, he says, I was saved. I am being saved. And I will be saved. You see, the Christian life now is, like, we were saved when we turned to Christ. We are being saved now as we grow more like him, as we understand him more. And we will be saved as he takes us to heaven to be with him forever. And we live a life now of rejoicing and praising and glorifying God. It can be a hard thing to do to live a life of praising and glorifying God. And yet that's what we are called to as Christians. It's a great joy that we can sing songs which often can lift our hearts to those heights of praise. And yet our whole life should be like that, not just when we sing those songs. When we go through uh, suffering and sadness, we can still have a joy in our hearts that we are saved and that we will be saved. Well, there's a few questions for you to think about in your groups along those lines.